0: There are certain situations where parents might also say, like, we don't do that, or big, you know, big kids don't cry about that, or we have to be strong, or you have nothing to be upset about. So I don't know that it's not just that they're not rewarded, but they're also being told to suppress them outright, or being told that what they're doing is wrong. And of course, we know a lot of that comes from the parent being really uncomfortable with their own emotional experience and not being able to meet the child where they're at in that moment.
1: Hello, beautiful soul. Welcome to Break the Cycle with Dr. Marielle, a podcast where I bring in some of my favorite healers from across the world to talk about how we transition from intergenerational trauma to intergenerational abundance. I'm your host, and trauma-informed psychologist, Dr. Mariel Bouquet. Now join me and my fellow healers as we break the cycle. Welcome to this episode where I talk to my fellow therapist, Whitney Goodman, She's a licensed marriage and family therapist and the author of Toxic Positivity, which is a powerful guide on how we can navigate our emotions, even the difficult ones, in order to show up authentically in this world. But before we get started, let me remind you that whenever you're engaging in trauma-centered content, it's going to be really, really important for you to center yourself on your breath. So as you listen, if you're willing and able, find your breath, deepen it just a bit. Remember that your breath is your anchor and stick around to the end of the episode for a bonus sound bath meditation. Now, without further ado, here's Whitney. Hello. Hi, how's it going, Whitney?
0: Good. How are you?
1: Doing good. Doing good. Welcome. So good to have you.
0: You too. Or thank you for having me, I should say.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I have a lot that I want to talk to you about. We're going to dive into a lot of nuggets that are going to be within your realm of expertise in reference to breaking generational ties. And first, you know, I'd like for people to just get acquainted with who we're talking to. So if you could just give us a little eye into the world of Whitney Goodman, tell us about yourself.
0: Yeah. So my name is Whitney Goodman. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist in Florida. And I recently wrote a book called Toxic Positivity. I mainly work with adult individuals that are having relationship issues, whether that's with their parents, friends, family, or romantic partners. And I also like to do a lot of writing and stuff for social media.
1: Mm. Well, you are... One of the first people I've ever heard say I like to do writing. <laughs> <laughs> writing. Uh, you definitely have to have a good love of writing to be able to do some writing. <laughs> Especially as, I, as I'm writing a book right now. It's a, <laughs> it's a labor of love.
0: <laughs> For sure. For sure. Mm-hmm.
1: But congratulations on your book. And I'm excited to dive into nuggets that are reflected in your book and, and ways that people can get acquainted with your work. So As soon as you said toxic positivity, I'm sure people are already like, oh, I know what we're going to get into. And it is really essential to talk about within the context of intergenerational trauma because toxic positivity is one of the elements that definitely keeps cycles going. So, if you could, from your vantage point in your work, let us know how you feel that toxic positivity being kind of like a hallmark that runs within. Families, how that can be one of the components of what keeps a family stuck in trauma.
0: For sure. So, I think a lot of people can relate to the idea that they've grown up with parents who are always wanting them to be happy or encouraging this idea of, I just want you to be happy. Nothing else really matters. And I know I grew up in a family that was like that and had some of those messages. And I think when we hear that as kids, we really feel like any other emotion that we experience that comes our way should be silenced or cast aside in the name of positivity or happiness. And I think what happens is that silences so many people about problems they're having, whether it's things going on in the family or within their own lives, because it's like, oh, we don't talk about that. That's not a positive happy thing. Um, It's not something that we're equipped to talk about either if our parents never model that or teach us about that. Mm
1: -hmm. So it is basically what can also contain family secrets within a family that doesn't allow a family to, to actually, one, talk about it within their family unit, right? But also just really kind of destroy the shame that keeps it going. So tell us a little bit, because I know shame is infused in toxic positivity, right? Like If we are not able to really kind of reconcile with shame and what is really happening in our reality, then of course, we're going to lean on whatever's positive only. So tell us about that.
0: Yeah. You know, I see shame show up a lot as a consequence of toxic positivity. And the reason that happens, I think, is that there's this idea of like, this is what I should be feeling. This is what I should be doing. This is what society, my parents, whatever tells me is the right thing. And a lot of times that's positivity or happiness. And then over here we have like, but this is what I'm actually feeling and it's complicated and it's messy or it doesn't feel good. And the discrepancy between those two things, I think is where we really see shame bubble up. It's this feeling of like, I'm not normal or I'm the only one that's dealing with this or there's something wrong with me because I'm not able to feel the way that people are telling me I should be feeling all the time.
1: Okay. So kind of like if I could take it like in a more overarching kind of concept of just mental health, right? When we were talking about mental health, maybe five years ago, and I know you've been in this social media space alongside myself and a few other therapists for a while we were first talking about, hey, why don't we collectively end the stigma around mental health? And that was like mm-hmm. the top line conversation, right? We've all <laughs> like kind of, <laughs> we've, we've gotten a little bit more niched about what we talk about more recently. Mm-hmm. But it definitely started off with those kinds of like broader conversations. And when we were talking about these conversations, I think there was this undercurrent of talking about what is the normal Way of being. Yeah. You know, and I think that now that we're getting more niche to more specific about these conversations, now we're getting to, hey, if we're not, if we're not having conversations about normal looking like a lot of things and not just this one thing, mm-hmm. then really what we're allowing is an opportunity for shame to seep into a person's life and for someone to say, well, I must be abnormal. I must not be a part of the normal crowd if my anxiety and depression isn't something that is more typical across society, then I'm enclosing myself because I feel like I am a person that is like very, very different than everybody else. So now I'm not only operating under anxiety, but also shame.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's funny to think back to those like early mental health Instagram days and how much things (laughs) have changed. And I think we're all dealing with this reckoning now of like, what did I grow up thinking was normal within my culture, my gender, my race, whatever it is, where I live in the country? And now what are these people outside of that telling me is normal? And how do I want to integrate all of these different things like into my identity for what feels good for me?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. And I love that you're tying in the intersections at which our identities lie because within those, there are different concepts of what we... Deemed to be or consider normal. There are different variations of how we also ascribe to family secrecy, Mm -hmm. depending on cultural background. So there's there's a lot of nuances that we can add to the mix when it comes to that as well. Now, I was just mentioning that I wanted to get into something that is reflected in the context of your work. But before I get there, I I was curious to see what you were going to say.
0: I was thinking about the relationship between like toxic positivity and family secrets that we were talking about, that there's a lot of this pressure of like, we don't let people see that side of our family. We don't let people see what isn't good, sort of this, like we always have to be projecting this positive exterior to the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like now, like I love when when culture already popularizes something that can help us to have conversations that can dismantle some of the shame and secrecy that exists within families for so many generations. Like, of course, now we have like the Encanto movie, right? And so the We Don't Talk About Bruno song, that being something that has, I think, opened up so many conversations around well, you know, the family is kind of at a more superficial level, seeming pretty happy and connected, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a lot underneath the surface that is also there that is very disjointed and is filled with hurt and pain. So let's talk about that. Instead of always being about, like you call it, the Hallmark card kind of version of a family, let's be the more realistic version and talk about all the things that are present in the family. Mm-hmm. So what what made you come up with that concept of the Hallmark card version of a family?
0: I think it's because on Instagram, people are always asking like, what do I say to someone going through this? Or what do I do in this situation? I found that so many people were trying to just be perfect or have kind of these perfect responses to everything. And, and that was something I noticed in my own family growing up, that we were kind of taught and conditioned to show a certain version that was more like palatable than maybe everything that was going on. And in some situations that makes sense. But I think for kids, it can be confusing sometimes of like, why do I only show this part and not others? Or what does that really look like for me?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about kids. Because a, a child's mind, as you mentioned, will interpret something very differently than an adult. For those listening, we go through certain periods in our lives where our minds start to structure itself like differently. Like for example, there is a, a period in our childhood where we think in a very black and white way. It's this or that. It's good or bad. It's evil or it's you know, it's good. Mm-hmm. And then we start becoming more abstract in our thinking, right? A person can be good and can have bad qualities. And there's nuances in between and there's multi-layered ways that I can see a person, right? And that's kind of coming into our more adolescent mind. But for a young mind that hasn't really adopted a more nuanced way of looking at life, how might they interpret toxic positivity in a home? What are the ways in which they could internalize those messages?
0: I think they certainly could internalize that certain feelings are good and certain feelings are bad, right? And certain ways of expressing those feelings are good or bad. And so with a lot of young children, we see them learning like, okay, my parents like me best when I'm happy, or they reward me most when I am exhibiting these different positive emotions. And when I cry or I do X, Y, and Z, they're telling me not to cry, They're telling me I shouldn't be feeling that way. And those more distressing or what we might call negative emotions become something that the child is trying to avoid or suppress.
1: Okay. So the suppression of those emotions comes from the fact that it's not rewarded in a gentle way in the ways that a positive emotion might be. Am I getting that right?
0: I think so. And just there are certain situations where parents might also say like, we don't do that or big kids don't cry about that or we have to be strong or you have nothing to be upset about. So I don't know that it's not just that they're not rewarded, but they're also being told to suppress them outright or being told that what they're doing is wrong. And of course, we know a lot of that comes from the parent being really uncomfortable with their own emotional experience and not being able to meet the child where they're at in that moment.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. Okay. So, you know, that just took me back to a family that I used to work with a long time ago. And the adolescence in the family was the as we call them, identified patient, right? Everybody comes in because the adolescent is exhibiting some type of behavior. And as we know, you know, that usually means that there is a symptom in the family and the symptom has been identified in one person. But I remember that there was an interaction between one of the parents and the adolescent where the parent, I was just getting to know the parent and really kind of understanding how they interact with their child. And the parent was abundantly loving, abundantly. It was just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. But as I was looking at the adolescent, they were kind of like shrinking in their own skin, Mm. becoming beet red, almost like you could see visibly see the anger Mm. in their face. And immediately I thought they're not internalizing this as love. And what the parent was saying was there's no need for you to feel that way. So although it was something that they were saying from a place of love. It was being received as what we call in dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, we call it like chronic invalidation, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I now see and understand as a form of toxic positivity.
0: Right, right, exactly.
1: So is that kind of like the, the type of interchange that you're talking about that tends to happen?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such a perfect example of, the nuance around some of this stuff that things can sound very nice and kind and compassionate and still be invalidating in some way. Because when you're feeling something and someone's telling you like, you know, it's not really that big of a deal. You have nothing to worry about. You don't need to feel that way. I think especially for a child and adults, it's kind of like, but wait, I am really feeling this. And it's very strong. And powerful for me. And it's not that easy. Like I can't just make this go away or, or not feel it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they're, they're pretty stuck. So what does a person instead say that is not along the realms of toxic positivity, but what is the non-toxic positivity version of that? And what is it called? And what does a person do?
0: Yeah. So I like to focus on seeking understanding and then showing compassion and empathy. So if you're in a relationship with someone where seeking understanding and asking questions is appropriate, then I think asking, you know, what does that feel like for you? What's the hardest part? What are you struggling with? Or how can I help you with that? Like really trying to be focused on collecting data and understanding what's going on. And then the compassion and empathy is really just Saying, that makes sense. I can see why you're scared. I can see why you're hurting. I might be scared too if I was going through this, thinking about, you know, with children, like, oh, that's a really big feeling or that was overwhelming, that was scary. And trying to show them that you believe them and that you trust them to communicate their emotional experience in a way that makes sense to them.
1: Mm, Okay, yeah in a language that is appropriate for that child's understanding, whether they're the tiny, tiny human or they're in the adolescence.
0: Right, exactly.
1: I love that. I, I love that, that combination. As you were speaking, it, it reminded me of this conversation I recently had with Resma Menekem, who focuses more on racialized trauma and being able to extract, you know, the remnants of racialized trauma in our bodies. And he was talking about how When you ask a person or when you sit with a person in their pain, you have to be prepared for whatever may come. So in a way, a person asking these kinds of questions, they have to be prepared to be a container Mm -hmm. for whatever is there. Right. That's important.
0: Absolutely.
1: Cause I, I, you know, if they're not prepared then they can easily lean back into toxic positivity. So what does that person have to do to be able to be a container, a parent, a partner, whomever?
0: I think we were just kind of reflecting on this earlier in the conversation that people have to be willing and able to kind of do that for themselves before they're able to do it for others. And so I'm sure, I know as I was becoming a therapist, and this might be true for you as well, that You had to kind of get better at those skills of like understanding your own emotions, being able to sit with people when they're in distress and not try to fix them or change what they're feeling. And for me, that meant really being able to do that for myself. I couldn't meet people where they were at without practicing those skills. And so I think for people like who want to know how they can be more helpful and how they can be more compassionate, it really starts with you. And learning how to talk to yourself compassionately.
1: Mm -hmm. So being able to practice those skills on a daily basis, I think I'm hearing you say can expand a person's window of tolerance, how much they can actually contain for themselves and then for others. So their window of tolerance is increased and they can be a larger container for everyone else.
0: For sure. And and I think also boundaries come into play here. You know, there are going to be certain people in your life that maybe you cannot help for whatever reason, or if you're going through something difficult in your life that makes your window of tolerance smaller, being able to verbalize that with the people around you and say compassionately, you know, I really want to be there for you and I want to help you. But I do not have a lot of resources right now or I don't have a lot of space.
1: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That sounds like it can build compassion both ways, right? Like if you can say, hey, you know, I I really want to be here for you. That's a compassionate piece towards you. But I also am realizing I don't have capacity at the moment. That's you extending compassion inward. So it's very kind of bilateral.
0: Yes, so true. I
1: love that. Mm -hmm. I love that. And all of this, of course, makes me think of, Deeper connections because the more that we can exist and coexist in a place of unified reality, and where, as you know, you know, of course, from like a lot of Brene Brown's work around vulnerability, the deeper the capacity for vulnerability with a fellow human around areas that can be tender, the more connection that we can build within the relationship. So it makes me think of connection. Like if you are able to shed away some of the toxic positivity, move in the direction of greater vulnerability, then connection can flow a little easier. Is that anything you've seen in your work happen?
0: For sure. I think toxic positivity inhibits connection. It stops us from being able to connect. And so when we're able to kind of put that aside and just say, I'm going to meet you where you're at. That's something about like joining someone in their reality and sharing that reality with each other is the foundation, I think, of vulnerability and compassion. And it's the opposite of a lot of those platitudes that we've been just conditioned to say.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm guessing, you know, from the podcast itself, you probably already knew that this question was coming, but I'd love to ask this question nonetheless for everyone that's with us. And I like to preface the question by always saying, where can we start? So where can we start to break the cycle? If someone is thinking of engaging in cycle breaking behavior today and reference to toxic positivity, where can they start?
0: I think they can start with themselves, you know, in learning how to validate their own emotions, learning how to speak to themselves compassionately and try to seek understanding and in practicing that with themselves, also trying to do it with the people in their life.
1: Yes. Practicing with yourself. I love that. Grab a mirror. I think we just about... Anybody has a mirror or some sort of a reflective item in their homes, hopefully, that they can lean on to try and speak to themselves in a gentle manner and extend that compassion inward. And I wholeheartedly agree with you. When we have that internal practice, it makes it a lot easier to be able to afford that on. Love that. Thank you for offering that nugget. This is really, really important. Of course. Well, Whitney, where can people find you and your work?
0: Yes, you can find me on Instagram, other social media at SitWithWit. And my book, Toxic Positivity, is sold anywhere books are sold. You can also go to my website, sitwithwit.com, to find any other information about me.
1: Love it. Love it. I hope people dive over to that, all of those locations, and and that they can interchange with your work in, in whatever way feels right. Thank you so much for being here, Whitney.
0: Thank you, thank you so much for having me.
1: I hope you appreciate this nugget of wisdom that Whitney just shared with us in reference to chronic invalidation and toxic positivity. Now, whenever we're talking about trauma, our nervous system registers it and it can make us feel uneasy. So I would like to offer you this sound bath meditation as a way to help soothe your soul after digesting this episode. So if you're willing and if you're capable of participating, I invite you to lower your gaze. Maybe close your eyes if that feels safe. Take in the next inhale with intention. Release when you're ready. And let's begin. Taking your final breath in. And say this in your mind's eye I am well. I am here. I am safe. When you're ready, open your eyes. Remember that no matter where you are in your healing journey, you have an opportunity today to break the cycle. For weekly coping tips, be sure to sign up to my newsletter and follow me on social at Dr. Bouquet. It has been so wonderful offering you this episode and this sound bath meditation. Take care of this beautiful soul of yours, and I'll see you at the next episode. Okay.